0: Life and Crimes is brought to you by the subscribers of The Herald Sun. So if you're a subscriber, thank you. Your support helps us create shows like this. And if you're not a subscriber, a subscription to The Herald Sun gives you access to premium articles, including my weekly column, digital versions of the newspaper, and much more. If you like our work and want to sign up, go to heraldsun.com.au slash andrewrule, one word, and click on any article to begin. One of the detectives takes a look inside the back of the car and he sees a library card. And the library card is for, I think, Long Bay Jail, which is unusual. It rattled him considerably because he realised that he'd been stalked by a lunatic with whom he used to go to school. One of the strange coincidences in Australian crime in recent years is that two of the big fugitive stories, both have a connection with one suburban shopping centre, that is Doncaster Shopping Town, now known as Doncaster Westfield, or Westfield Doncaster, in Melbourne's eastern suburbs. And it's here in the car park that the 11-year reign of Australia's greatest ever criminal fugitive ended in a hail of bullets. And 30 years later, it is where another fugitive did the crime that turned him into a man on the run. The first one, Australia's greatest ever criminal fugitive, is Russell Mad Dog Cox, who, as we have noted before in these podcasts, was neither mad, nor a dog, nor was his name even Russell Cox. He was born something like Peter Melville, or Melville Peter Schnitzeling, but known as a child as Tiny Tim, or as Tim, or Timmy, because he'd been a premature baby and very small. But small baby or not, Russell Cox grew into a strong, fit, tough man. And as we've mentioned before in these podcasts, it is widely held that he took up a life of crime because he once, as a little boy, won a new bicycle in a raffle. But because he couldn't be there to accept his winning prize, the people that ran the raffle redrew the ticket and awarded the bicycle to someone else. And the story goes he was so incensed by this that he went out and stole a bike identical to the one that he should have won. And they say that that's what started Russell Cox or Timmy Schnitzeling on his life of crime in Queensland back in the late 50s and early 60s. It might even be true. What is true is that he ended up in the notorious boys' homes of that era that turned scallywag young boys into young criminals through beatings, abuse and worse. And Russell Cox, like Christopher Dale Flannery and many others, graduated from the boys' homes as young criminals who were vicious and tough and cunning. We needn't run through the entire life and crimes of Russell Cox because we have done that on other occasions, But we should remind people that he escaped from high security prison, the Katingle Maximum Security Unit of Long Bay Jail back in 1977. Now this unit was supposed to be escape proof. It was known as an electronic zoo and it sent men mad because they didn't have any contact with other humans and it was certainly meant to be escape proof but Russell Cox worked out a way to get out of it which was astonishing. What was even more astonishing is that he stayed on the loose for 11 years, during which time he pulled many big arm robberies, he planned other armed robberies for other crooks because he used to franchise robberies, and he also took part in at least two murders. So Russell Cox was a very busy man during that 11-year period, and yet he somehow found a way to mostly live with the love of his life a woman that went by many names but is often referred to as Helen Eva Dean. And Helen Eva Dean I think might have been a nurse by training or by inclination and she was certainly a sister of Gail Bennett. And Gail Bennett was the ever-loving wife of Raymond Patrick Bennett, big-time Melbourne painter and docker, who of course was shot dead by a gunman in the Melbourne Magistrates Court in 1979. So these two sisters had gone for two dashing rogues. And one, Gail Bennett, ended up widowed. And Helen, Eva Dean, alias Cox, alias Schnitzeling, alias many other names, followed her man around Australia, living in secret, under false names, in rented premises, all over the place. And they did it successfully, so successfully, in fact, that they say that that couple sometimes went on overseas holidays using false ID. They would go to Thailand or to Bali or to other places and enjoy their holidays and then come back and rob another bank. They say they even bought a small farm in rural Queensland, in the same district where Russell Cox's pioneer family, the Schnitzelings, had lived. In fact, he bought a little farm just off Schnitzeling Road, which is many, many kilometres from Brisbane, but the district where his forebears had come to when they migrated from Germany back in the 1800s. It might have been his little joke. Long story short, Russell Cox was on the run for 11 years. As we've just said, he pulled robberies, he did murders, he moved around Australia, he even had his pet dog with him, his pet dog, Devil, named after the Phantom's dog, Wolf Dog devil. Of course, Russell Cox's devil was a Labrador, a black lab, but he uh, couldn't call him devil while they were on the run, because that would be a giveaway, so he too had an alias, which was Butch, as many listeners will recall. In July 1988, Cox had been on the run 11 years. No one knew where he was, but he bobbed up in Melbourne. Interestingly, one week earlier, Raymond John Denning, A notorious New South Wales prisoner had escaped from Grafton Prison in New South Wales and had immediately headed south. And what no one realised then was that Denning had access to a series of safe houses run by a group of people who, for reasons known to themselves, liked to help escape prisoners with a sort of underground railway type scenario where they had safe houses to help these romantic figures as they saw them. They were not, in fact, terribly romantic, but that's the way their helpers saw them. And Denning had somehow got the assistance of these sympathisers who thought, you know, they were living in the Ned Kelly era or the Robin Hood era or something. And he'd been linked up with Cox, and they were without doubt planning a major robbery. And almost certainly they were planning a major robbery at Doncaster Shopping Town, as it was then known, later known as Westfield. And the idea would have been that they were going to rob a Bramble's armoured car of a very large amount of money. But it turns out that a security guard or similar noticed a suspicious vehicle in the car park there. Must have noticed that a car had been parked in a particular spot or whatever. And put in a call to the police and the police put in a call to the armed robbery squad who happened to be driving past on another job. Just one of those lucky or unlucky things. Yeah, i robbery squad. A couple of cars worth of detectives scream into Doncaster Shoppingtown car park. One of the detectives takes a look inside the back of a car, and he sees I think a library card. And the library card is for I think Long Bay Jail, which is unusual. And on the library card is the name Raymond Denning, which of course is the escapee from New South Wales. This was a bit of a giveaway. <laughs> So they think, bingo, we've got a live one here. We've got a, a very wanted man on the go. So they thought they're going to catch Raymond Denning. And they did. They fanned out and they did whatever they had to do. And they, I think they might have caught Raymond Denning trying to jump into a large garbage bin, doing a bit of bin diving uh, to get away from them. But they caught him. And then they went looking for his accomplice. And the accomplice has got in a getaway car which might have been another stolen car or whatever it was. And he's, I think, attempted to drive his way out of the underground car park there at Doncaster, possibly waving a gun around. And it was like a scene from Al Capone's Chicago, because next thing, the police, who in the 1980s were fairly uninhibited with weapons, it was an era when they used to shoot a lot of crooks, they shot up this car as if it was Bonnie and Clyde. In fact, I think there was literally several dozen shots, you know, like 70 or 80 shots fired. Most of them ended up in the getaway car. And amazingly, none of them hit Russell Cox, which might be a lesson about firing at moving vehicles that they're hard to stop. But anyway, Cox probably worked out that he was going to get his head blown off if he drove any closer to these police who were uh, still full of firepower. And he stopped shooting, stopped driving, and they grabbed him, and they didn't know who he was. They just knew he was a very keen-armed robber. And he refused to say anything, except one thing. He said words to the effect of, when you find out who I am, you'll do cartwheels, or something to that effect. And indeed, they went back to the office in central Melbourne, and they got the fingerprint records out, and they printed him, and they compared the prints, and bingo. They then realised that it was time to do cartwheels. They'd caught Russell Cox, the most wanted man in Australia, for 11 years. So in one afternoon of good police work and even better luck, they've caught big-time prison escapee Raymond Denning, who's fresh out of jail, one week, and Cox, who's been on the run for 11 years. It was a very good day. So naturally they went and got a slab of beer and drank it, and then they went in with Russell Cox and they did the team photos. They got him to stand with them as if he was like a uh, prize lion or rhino or something and took the team shots of all the boys with their prisoner who really has a a sort of a deadpan look. He doesn't look overjoyed by this. But he realised that it made them very happy. And that's the story of how Russell Cox's reign as Australia's Most Wanted Man ended at Doncaster Shopping Town in 1988. The interesting thing is that as we speak in the year 2019, which is 30 plus years later, one of the most wanted people in Australia, a man called Jonathan Dick, it turns out that Jonathan Dick began his time as a wanted man in the same car park at the same shopping centre. It was a very different scenario. Jonathan Dick is not a celebrated armed robber, although he is a murderer probably. Allegedly, Jonathan Dick is actually a sad story in every way. Jonathan Dick lived alone, a 38-year-old man, as he was two years ago, in a run-down, decrepit house in Seymour, north of Melbourne. He was one of, I think, three sons of a lady called Carol Cloak, whose name had obviously changed because she'd remarried. And on the morning of February the 3rd, 2017... Jonathan Dick turned up at Doncaster Shopping Centre carrying what appeared to be a samurai sword wrapped in some paper, is what it looks like. And he was filmed by the routine security film hopping into a lift in the car park and going down or up or whatever. And uh, it would appear that he knew what he was waiting for. And what he was waiting for, it seems, was his own brother, David Dick. Now, David Dick was two years younger. He was a well liked, pleasant, lovely fellow, a carpenter, lived in the suburbs, suburban cricketer. He used to, I think, park a vehicle or whatever at the shopping centre car park and then catch a bus into work, probably into the city to, to work as a carpenter. And it would appear that his brother Jonathan knew his routine because on this morning, this week morning, very early, he was waiting for his brother David. David walked through the car park on his way to the bus stop and he attacked him with his samurai sword. Now, no-one at the time knew what had happened. All anybody knew was that a group of people walking through the car park later found this man bleeding to death, and indeed he did die. And uh, he was David Dick, and it was a tragic story, and it still is a tragic story. And the police held a media conference, I think later that day or in the days afterwards, where the dead man's mother, Carol Cloak, and her other son, Simon, Simon Dick, had gathered to appeal to the public for help on this terrible case. And behind them on a screen was screened the security footage of a slightly obscured figure of a man getting onto a lift, carrying a thing like a samurai sword. The amazing thing is that Mrs Cloak and her son, Simon, did not then quite realise that the man on the screen was their own son and their own brother, Jonathan. And it was only later obvious to them and to the police that the most likely candidate as the killer of David Dick was his brother, Jonathan. So Mrs Cloak, Carol Cloak, was faced with a terrible double loss. She not only had one son murdered, but she realised that almost certainly her other son a troubled mentally distressed son had almost certainly done the murder and so she stood to lose not one but two sons because she realized that the outlook for Jonathan was not great and that if he continued to use weapons in this way there was every chance he might be shot dead while being arrested and so she appealed to Jonathan publicly to come forward and said, we don't want anything to happen, we love you, we just want you to get help, and so on and so on. And you would think that would get a result. You'd think that he would see that, you'd think he'd get hungry, you'd think he'd run out of resources, out of money, out of anything. It turned out that his old car, he had an old Ford Fairmont, it was found a few days later in a street in Ivanhoe, and a local householder supplied security footage of a man walking away down that street, which would indicate that it was, in fact, Jonathan Dick, And his car, his old Ford, is found in a street in Ivanhoe, which is not all that far from Doncaster. Not only it is clearly his car, but he has vanished from his house at Seymour, hasn't been seen there for some days, which is interesting. And not only that, but a person who lives in that street in Ivanhoe had security footage which clearly showed a male of the right age and size and description walking down the street away from the vehicle and that it would seem was the last time that Jonathan Dick was seen for a long time. In fact, months passed and more months passed and the police must have suspected as you would that either Jonathan Dick was being harboured by someone who knew him who was looking after him or didn't realise that he was wanted or that he'd suicided somewhere in private so that his body wouldn't be found and that he'd done away with himself in the ocean or somewhere like that and had not been found because month after month went past and there was no sign of Jonathan Dick and it just became one of those biggish mysteries that recedes over time to become a small mystery until the morning of August the 23rd last year, that is 2018. This is 18 months and two weeks After the murder of David Dick at Doncaster, a strange thing happens in suburban Keylor on the other side of Melbourne. And what happened there was a local resident, a man in his late 30s, comes out of his house early in the morning, as he often did, uh, at the same time each day. He lived there with his wife and children. And on this occasion, he was assaulted out of the blue in the early morning light, just before 7am, by a man wielding a hammer the hammer-wielding man hits him in the head. A troubled young woman. Her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? Uh, I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Injures him and then runs away. The hammer-wielding man is wearing a red long sleeve top and blue jeans. He's got long, shoulder-length brown hair, but the victim recognises him. He says, that's Jonathan Dick, a guy I went to school with 25 years earlier, or 20 years earlier. It would appear that Jonathan Dick, who obviously suffers from some sort of delusions and fantasies, has harboured some probably imaginary grudge, not a very well-founded grudge probably, against his former schoolmate, has known where he lived or worked out where he lived, and gone and waited for him early in the morning, and then attacked him with a hammer. Now, we know that this happened for sure, there's no doubt about this, because it was garbage morning, and the passing garbage truck loading up its bins has cameras mounted to watch the operation of the uh, truck in a sort of a rear vision sense that looks the cameras look backwards. And one of those cameras on the kerb side of the truck picked up a fleeting glimpse of a man in a red top attacking another man with a hammer. And so there's no doubt it really happened. Luckily, the victim was not seriously hurt. I think he was taken to hospital, but he was OK. But, of course, it rattled him considerably because he realised that he'd been stalked by a lunatic with whom he used to go to school. This would be uh, most disconcerting for any of us. You would think of course that in the modern world with cameras everywhere and electronic surveillance and every other device that it would be relatively easy to catch a man wanted for the murder of his brother and for another vicious attack that so easily could have been another murder. And obviously carried out by someone who is a clear and present danger to anybody he meets if he chooses to attack them. The amazing thing is that twice in two years, Jonathan Dick has vanished off the face of the earth. There is no sign of him. And this goes to show that if you are off the grid, if you are not driving around in a car, if you are not using a mobile phone that triangulates your position... If you are not using credit cards or any of those things, if you avoid all electronic means of identifying you, that you can slip under the radar, almost literally under the radar. But you would wonder how this man without any resources would survive. And it would seem that Jonathan Dick, although he's clearly mentally disturbed, disturbed enough to attack people for no reason or no apparent reason, clearly still has the logic and thought processes to get himself around Melbourne and around Victoria and possibly around Australia in such a way that no one knows he's about. Now, either this means he's getting helped secretly by a sympathiser or someone related to him, or he has some other source of income that he's able to draw on, cash stashed away somewhere or some little cash job that he can access. It could be that he gets himself into state some way and then being away from Melbourne is able to exist without attracting much attention because to look at, he's just the average Joe. He's 176 centimetres tall. He's of moderately solid build, not as solid as perhaps he used to be. And he's got brown hair which used to be short and is now quite long or, or not. Who knows what length his hair is now. But he does not stand out. He's not overly big. He's not overly small and there's not much to distinguish him from 100,000 other men in their early middle age. He's now 40 years old, probably a boyish-looking man of that age and, as such, fits right in anywhere in the country. The tragedy of Jonathan Dick and his family underlines one interesting fact about fugitives and that is that the criminal fugitive who hangs around with other criminals and those other criminals, is always at risk of being betrayed by them, because his or her movements will be known by those other criminals who will inevitably talk about it in their own circles. And despite the so-called code of silence, there is always that risk that they will be sold down the river by some other crook who are trying to carry favour with the police because they've been charged with something else. But in the case of Jonathan Dick, he might be mentally unstable, clearly, and very, very dangerous, obviously, but he's not a member of the criminal classes and therefore he will not be hanging around with the sort of people who will see any value in dobbing him in. And that if he is being harboured by anyone, A, he's being harboured by people who don't realise that he is wanted, that's possible. If they're interstate particularly, they may not know. Or B... He could be being harboured by people who do know but who feel very sorry for him and because they are friends of the family or somehow related might feel a a bond of loyalty and want to try and look after him. And it underlines how those people who are outside the normal criminal underworld actually have a far better chance of staying uncaught than the real crooks. And that brings us to the topic of the man who might be legitimately called Australia's most wanted if he's alive. And that is a man called Graham Potter. And Graham Potter is another one who stands out as a story because he does not stand out as a human being. Graham Potter was once a young coal miner in the Wollongong area of New South Wales. And as such, he was just the average working stiff he worked mining coal and he'd you know, go to the pub on Fridays and probably smoke cigarettes and drive a Holden Tarana and lived a conventional enough life, you would think. But in 1981, Graham Potter got engaged and Graham Potter had what is commonly referred to as a Bucks Night at a local nightclub in Wollongong. Now, this wouldn't be a blue-ribbon social occasion. He did not, obviously, have exclusive run of the nightclub because it was a nightclub open to other people. And while he was in there shouting drinks for other miners or whatever, in comes the unluckiest young woman in Australia. Her name is Kim. She's 19. She's a shop assistant locally. Just a nice average girl. She's popped in for a drink or whatever. Somehow she's got talking to Potter. Somehow she's ended up invited back to Potter's flat. And there, for reasons that have never been made clear, Potter, 23-year-old coal miner, fiancé of somebody else, kills this girl in a savage attack. He then decides he has to dispose of the body. He cuts off her head and her fingers. He, despite his um, protestations of innocence, which he kept up for many years, he then takes her desecrated remains up into the bush and he throws her torso over a cliff and he goes another six kilometres away and he disposes of the fingers and her head in a garbage bag along with his own blood-soaked clothing and bedsheets. Well, within 24 hours or 36 hours, somebody finds the torso that's been thrown over the cliff. It's obviously not well hidden at all and that's a good thing in a way because It meant that her family were not just grieving the loss of someone. They never knew what happened. They found out what happened pretty rapidly, awful as that was. Her father was able to identify her fairly quickly. Can you imagine how bad that would be? It's one of the most chilling crimes I can think of. Within another four weeks, a man out walking his dog further away in the bush finds the garbage bag with the other parts, the missing parts, body parts, and that confirms what had happened. And it also confirms that Graham Potter is the prime suspect, in fact the only suspect, because everything's linked to him. He's the last to see her alive. It's his dressing gown and his bed sheets and and so on and so on. And undoubtedly there was overwhelming evidence to suggest that he'd done it. Uh, And in fact, when he goes to court charged with this terrible murder, he makes some outlandish claim like uh, two strange masked men burst in and killed the girl and then forced him to dispose of her body. The jury did not believe this, and neither they should have, and he was locked up. It's interesting in this context to consider that politicians and other commentators think that wrongdoers do not get enough time in jail these days compared with the good old days. Because here's the thing, this murder is committed in 1981. You would imagine that a murder done with that sort of savagery by someone who has no mental condition, no lawful excuse of any sort, would get, if not life then, a massive sentence. 30 years, 32 years, 34 years, 28 years, something like that. But no, Graham Potter was released. In 15 years. This, I find, verges on an insult to the family of the dead girl. Be that as it may, the story continues. Graham Potter, while inside, befriended a mafia figure called Pasquale Barbaro. Now, there are many Pasquale Barbaros in this country. Many of them related to each other because they are named after grandfathers. And so there are many grandsons of the original Pasquale Barbaro who are named Pasquale and it leads to much confusion uh, with law enforcement because they don't know necessarily which Pasquale they're after and at least three Pasquale Barbaros have been in a lot of trouble in the legal system in this country. I think all of them related to each other and this is big tough Pasquale Barbaro and he's in jail in New South Wales in the 1980s for dirty, rotten mafia business. He's uh, basically got involved in the drug side of the mafia, uh, out of the farming and into the drugs. And he has befriended people in jail that could be useful to him. And one of the people he befriends is Graham Potter, who he thinks, well, at least he's willing to kill people. So when they get out of jail in the 90s, Barbaro looks up his old jail mate Potter, or vice versa, and uh, Potter runs errands. For Barbaro, he does crime-related tasks for Barbaro. And it turns out, as we now know, that Barbara is part of a very large conspiracy to import $440 million worth of ecstasy, cocaine and various other drugs in tomato tins. It was well known as the tomato tin conspiracy and it involved Calabrian mafia identities from several states. It was a massive massive conspiracy, and also involved, of course, their connections back in the old country, in Italy, and in in Calabria particularly. The tomato tin conspiracy is one of the biggest drug busts in Australian history. It's of ongoing concern because of the connection with the Lawyer X scandal. It is said that Lawyer X might have assisted the police in apprehending some of the people responsible, so that is an interesting story that's ongoing and Potter doesn't have a lot to do with this but he is working as a sort of a, an offsider helper to these proper crooks, these proper mafiosi and he would not be well regarded by those people but he'd be a useful idiot. One thing leads to another and Potter apparently, and this is a very murky scenario, no one's dead sure who was paying who, and who was paying the rent, because it could be that Potter had already been turned as an informer by the authorities, or whatever. But anyway, it turns out that Potter is commissioned by his mafia friends to kill one of their own, who they think could be a problem for them. And he's offered $100,000 to kill this fellow Italian, one of the uh, conspirators. And he had a gun, yeah, he had, you know, he had the means to do it, but he couldn't even organise himself with uh, a decent car to do the hit, and he got some old magnet that uh, had a flat battery and wouldn't work, wouldn't go, and he muffed, I think, two chances at killing the target, and one of them, one of these opportunities was supposedly at the wedding of one of McGatto's sons, which would have been interesting, but... He misses his opportunities and he ends up sitting in his dodgy Magna in St Kilda Road waiting for the target to come out of an apartment in St Kilda Road. Little did he realise that the police are onto him and watching him and that uh, nothing would have happened anyway because they would have grabbed him first. Probably. It's all very murky. The point is that regardless of who's really employing him and whether he's an informer or what Graham Potter He's charged with serious conspiracy charges along with some of these mafiosi guys and he's supposed to answer these charges in the year 2010 and the charges are laid in 2008 and he doesn't front court. He jumps bail. He vanishes in 2010 and he's not seen. The police uh, obviously wonder where he is. And uh, they've got an all-points alert for him around the country. And the last time anyone saw Graham Potter for certain sure is later in 2010, a few months after he failed to answer bail. And he has pelled up with some other drifters. He's quite a friendly bloke who makes friends out on the road. He's got the gift of the gab. And he'd pelled up with a few other drifters people are probably on the wrong side of the law, and they're at a place called Tully in far north Queensland at a caravan park, and they'd got together in a car, probably no licences between them, to go to a local uh, concert or something, some event, and they were pulled over, routine checked by local coppers, and all three of the guys in the car bolted for the bush because all of them, none of them, wanted to talk to the police. Presumably all of them wanted... Presumably none of them had a licence, maybe the car was stolen, who knows. But the last time for sure that Graham Potter has been seen in the flesh was that day. He was seen running into the bush in Tully, North Queensland, wearing not much except, you know, a pair of jeans or something. And although there have been dozens of reported sightings of Graham Potter since then, No one knows for sure whether any of them are genuine because, in the end, he was an average-looking middle-aged guy and he would fit in with anybody like Jonathan Dick. He looked average and ordinary. He didn't stand out. And therefore, it made sense that a lot of people could think that they'd seen him. And every time there was some publicity about Graham Potter, the police would be deluged with supposed sightings. But looking back over it, and despite a suggestion he'd been seen around Griffith in New South Wales, which I suspect would be a very dangerous place for him to be, the last known sighting was at Tully in North Queensland. And the reason we come back to that is that Tully in North Queensland is well within the range of the man-eating saltwater crocodile. And it is widely suspected that if you go on the lamb in that district and run into the bush and start to cross the local creeks and rivers, there's a fair chance you will be eaten by a crocodile. And so the betting is that Graham Potter may no longer be with us because if the crocodiles did can get him, the mafia probably did. You can read this story in my column in the Sunday Herald Sun or online at heraldsun.com.au. My name is Manny Karoudis and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts.